Acts chapter 6 is a great example of what God does in a church and in the lives of individuals as we experience problems. Um, how many of you this morning, um, I'm going to do this reverse of what I did in the early service, how many of you have absolutely no problems in your life at this moment? I'm looking, I'm looking. All right, how many of you, let's just do this, how many of you have some problems? You got problems, I got problems, all God's children have got problems. Someone has said, you know, how do you, how do you know you might face some problems today? Uh, there was a list of several things. One said, if your income tax check bounces, you know you're in for some problems. <laughs> some of y'all aren't laughing. I think maybe that's been an experience for you. It's bringing up some painful memories. If you put both of your contacts in the same eye, you might be in some problems today. If your twin sister forgets your birthday... I like this one. If your birthday, and some of y'all might experience this one, if your birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles, <laughs> just be glad you have another day to have problems in if you're at that point. If you wake up face down on the pavement, or if you call 911 and they put you on hold, you might be in for some problems. Someone has said the best way to know that you might have problems today is you just wake up, and that's certainly true. In Acts chapter 6, the church faces problems. We have seen in these chapters, beginning in chapter 4, that when God is at work in a church, Satan is going to fight. When God is at work in an individual's life, Satan is going to fight. And I want you to see these principles in this passage this morning because they are true for us as a church and they are true for us as individuals. Now let me just pause a minute and say, just as soon as any time I've ever started preaching on problems in a church, people automatically begin to say, ooh, we've got problems. <laughs> and they, they get, some of people get a little excited about it, just to be quite honest. Um, you know, the best time to talk about problems is, is when you're not having any. You go ahead and talk about it, and you deal with it, and I'm not going to wait till there's problems. We come to this passage, and they're dealing with problems in the church. That's when we're going to talk about it, okay? And so don't sit around trying to think, I wonder who he's talking about. I wonder who's been complaining, who's griping. And I'm sure that there probably is somebody that has complained or griped, but I don't care. You know, I didn't hear it, and I don't want to hear about it, and I'm fine. But there's times when that's going to take place. There's times when Satan is going to fight. We saw in chapter 5 that Satan fought from the people who are the church, Ananias and Sapphira, and sometimes that happens. But in chapter 6, Satan tries to stop what God is doing through problems that are in the church. And I want you to see in this passage this morning, this is some great truths for how we will face problems as individuals or as a body of believers. You know, there's some people, their approach to problems is, is they fear problems. They flee from problems. They will do anything they can to avoid difficulty. They will find, in fact, they won't ever try anything unless they are completely guaranteed that they're going to succeed. They don't want to do anything and fail. And so they're so scared of failure, they're so scared of encountering any kind of adversity or opposition or problems that they won't even try anything. Then there's other people that just seem to find problems. Have you ever known anybody like that? They just, everything just seems to go wrong. And there's a great story about the old farmer that he lost, he sort of went through a Job circumstance and he lost his, he has lost his crops and he lost his, his animals and his, his wife got sick and one thing after another went wrong and he was praying. He said, Lord, 
why is all this happening to me? And the Lord answered and said, I don't know. There's just something about you that ticks me off. (laughs) Sometimes we find problems and we just sort of feel like, Lord, what is it about me that ticks you off? I don't understand. But they seem to find, some people bring them, they cause their own problems by expecting them. Their own anticipation becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so they just seem to find problems. But uh, we're, not, we're not trying to flee from problems, and we're not trying to seek them out, but at the same time, we just have to, we have to face our problems, and that's what the church does here. The church has the opportunity. We as individuals have the opportunity to ignore problems, but you know what happens with a problem that you ignore. It only gets worse, and it gets bigger. And that's true, again, whether it's a church or whether it's our lives. So I want you to see some principles in Acts chapter 6 that are godly, biblical, spiritual principles to facing our problems. That a spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled church is not one that doesn't have problems and difficulties. It's one that handles them in a spirit-filled way. And a spirit-filled Christian is not one that will not have problems in their lives. It's a They're a believer that handles them and responds to them in a spirit-filled way. That's why we pray for the Holy Spirit to come on us. I need the Holy Spirit not just when I'm worshiping with the choir or the special music, not just when I'm preaching, not just when I'm witnessing. I need the power of the Holy Spirit every single day and moment of my life. And so that's how a spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled person will respond to these problems I want you to see, first of all, in this passage, the reality of problems. These are real. They happen. Don't think that we're excluded from it. Everybody's like, oh, man, I'd love to get back to the, old, the, the New Testament church. If we could just get back to that church in Acts, it would be wonderful. Read the book of Acts. They had problems. They had difficult people. They had Ananias and Sapphira. They had Grecians that were complaining, and they had all these other problems and challenges, and they had, to, they had to discuss theology, and they had to do difficult things. But they did it in the power of the Spirit. Notice the reality of their problem. In those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows, the Grecians' widows, were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, as we think about this, I want you to think with me just first of all about the root of the problem. Where do problems come from? There are some problems that are satanically instigated. We know from the book of Job, for example, that God, uh, Satan comes before God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Job, uh, Satan says, yeah, I've considered Job, but look at all that you've done to bless him. If you took your hand off of him and let me touch him, if you would let me give him some problems in his life, he wouldn't bless you so much. And so Satan puts his hand on Job at God's allowance, and Satan instigates the problems. Now, this does happen in people's lives, but the problem is is that we give Satan way too much credit in our lives. I I remember being in a prayer meeting one night, and this person came in, and they said, man, boy, the devil's just been on my back all day. And about five minutes later, another person came in and said, you know, the devil's just been on my back all day. And I wanted to say to him, uh, no, he can't. He's been, on, he's been on Joe's back all day. He can't be on your back too. And another person, the devil's just been after me all week. No, we give the devil way too much credit for the problems in our lives. Sometimes those problems are not satanically instigated. Some problems are self-inflicted. We bring our own problems on ourselves. I had a friend years ago that went hunting, and he stopped to have a bite of lunch and he was going to reach in his pack to get his snack out and get his lunch out. And he rested his shotgun on 
his boot. And as he reached back for his food, he gun jostled, he grabbed at it, pulled the trigger, and blew his toe off. Sometimes we just blow our own toe off. There's an old saying that if I could kick the person most responsible for my problems, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a month. Sometimes our problems, we bring them on ourselves. But what do we do? We'll blame them on the devil. Sometimes it's not the devil. Sometimes it's you. That's a good place to say amen. Y'all sit there like, no, it's not me. I didn't. Yeah, you do, and I do, and all of us do. There are some problems that are sovereignly initiated. God sends those to our lives, or he puts us in a situation where we're going to face problems. The disciples were put into a boat. Jesus says, get in a boat and go to the other side. They were being obedient to the will of God. And what happened while they were in that boat on their way across the sea? A storm came up. And immediately it was, well, because, well, we, should have, we must have done something wrong. No, that didn't do anything wrong. They were obeying Christ. And he wanted them in that moment, in that place, in that problem, in that storm. And then there's times when just simply problems are the natural result of trying to do something. And when the church starts obeying God, when we start following after God, when you as a believer start following after God and start trying to serve God, there's the potential for problems. That's the root of the problem. What is the reason? Well, we see that in the next phrase, when the number of the disciples were multiplied. Anytime you get people together, there's the potential for problems. And the more people you get together, the greater the potential for problems. And that's exactly what happened. What happens here is, is that now it's no longer before Pentecost, you have the disciples who are following Christ. And they are the Hebrews of this passage. They are those who are from Jerusalem. They are those who grew up in Palestine. They have Jewish culture. They have Palestinian culture. They speak Aramaic. They are used to that culture and that language. And then on the day of Pentecost, you have a whole bunch of people that get saved, and there's an influx into the church of what they refer to here as the Grecians. These are not Greek in nationality. They are Jews who have been spread all around the world to different cultures. And because the language of the world at that time is Greek and the culture of the world at that time is Greek, they have been born into a Greek culture and they have Greek names and they speak the Greek language and they are not from Jerusalem. They are from out of town. And now you've brought into this church, you have brought together two different cultures. And it's no different than it is in our day when you start bringing different cultures and different ethnicities into a group together. There's challenges to it. And so these Grecians, as they bring, you remember from chapter 3 and 4 and 5, they would sell property and they would take the money and they would give to those that have need. And they would bring it to the apostles. And they would provide for the widows, those that had need, the widows indeed, Paul will call them later, and the orphans, those that have no one to care for them. The church steps up and says, we'll, carry, we'll care for them. But as they're doing this, the Grecians say, hey, you hometown folks, all your widows are being taken care of, and our widows aren't. You see, they started, a, they started a food ministry, and they ran into problems. Whenever we start trying to serve and minister, there's the potential for problems. The way to have problems is not to have people. And if you have people and don't want problems, don't do anything. 
That's not the church. The church is a body of people that are serving God. So there's going to be the potential for these kind of situations. The reminder of this problem is that it helps them focus in on what their priority is. Your problems in life and my problems in life have a clear way of bringing things into focus to remind us of what our purpose is, to remind us of what our passion is, to remind us of what our priorities are. And the apostles who have been busy trying to do these things, and they realize, hey, you know, they're right. We're so busy trying to do this. We're neglecting. We're leaving these widows out. And so these disciples, the apostles rather, Look in verse 2, the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, they're not saying we're too good to do service. We're too good to do a menial task. But they know what God called them to do. How do they know that? Because in Matthew chapter 28 and in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to these disciples who are now the apostles, you are to be witnesses of me, you are to proclaim the gospel, and you are to teach those that get saved. That's their job. That's their task. They're not saying these other things aren't important. But that problem helped bring them back to this is our task. This is our purpose. Let me tell you that as a church, that as believers, the gospel is our purpose. What are they proclaiming? What word are they preaching? It's what we saw on Wednesday night. They are preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And it is that message, the gospel that they are proclaiming. And they said, look, we've got to spend time in the word. They're not just sitting around studying old dusty books of theology. They are studying the Word so they can teach what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit is miraculously, as Jesus promised, He will bring to your remembrance all the things that I said unto you. And the Holy Spirit is bringing those things back to them. And they are teaching the Word of God. They are teaching the Gospel. And souls are being saved. And they said, look, this is our task. This is our focus. Your problems in your life have a way of refining your purpose and boiling it down to what truly, what truly matters. The results of the problem, well, what are the results if they, didn't, if they didn't deal with it? And the problem, if we don't deal with it, starts with a complaint. They said, hey, you're not taking care of our widows. A complaint's sort of like a pain. Nobody wants to have them, but they give you an indication of a deeper problem. There's something else deeper that's causing the pain. So the complaint... There's a, there's a situation here. We've got to deal with this. Because if you don't deal with the complaint, it will move to conflict. And if conflict is not resolved and dealt with, it will move to chaos. And I suspect many of us are aware of groups of believers that are in chaos today and in conflict because they didn't allow the Holy Spirit to work out their problems, to bring resolution, to bring peace. The results. What is their response? How did they respond to the problem, and how do we respond? I want you to see several things. First of all, their solution shows their fearlessness. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them. They gathered together. They faced it rather than ignoring it. They got together. Instead of, instead of causing division and spreading out, they came together. When we pretend that a problem doesn't exist, we allow it to grow 
And we can miss out on an opportunity from benefiting from the problem. I'm reminded of a situation, a problem that I encountered a number of years ago, and um, I, I had the opportunity on a Saturday morning. Someone had offered to take me golfing, and I, 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 this is probably, that was probably the last day that I thought I was going golfing. It's been years ago, and I haven't golfed since. I guess I'm not superstitious, but it sort of worries me whenever somebody says, hey, you want to go golfing? I remember what happened this time when things... And boy, I got a call about 7 o'clock that morning, and I could tell right then, not only was I not going golfing, uh, it was going to be a long day. What I didn't realize was is what at first seemed like a great problem and something I didn't really want to encounter was God answering a prayer about a situation that I had been praying for months. God, you're going to have to resolve this situation. How You've got to help me with this. I can't do this. I could see several ways to resolve it, and every one of them led to greater problems. You ever been in those situations where, yeah, I see a solution, but the solution is worse than, the cure's worse than the disease. About three hours into that day, as difficult as it became, I began to see that God was answering that prayer. If I had drawn back from it, if I had walked away from it, if I had ignored it, I would have missed not only God taking care of the problem, but God using it as an opportunity to expand what he was going to do. So don't run away from the problems. Face the problems, but face them with the Holy Spirit at work in your heart, guiding you and filling you and producing the fruit of the Spirit and the love and the joy and the peace to prepare you to engage with that problem. And that's what they did. They called them together. They faced it fearlessly. They, it showed their focus. They were focused, number one, on God's love. They didn't treat these people as if they were the bad guy. They saw, look, there's not one place in this passage that says these Grecians were wrong. In fact, it says they, their widows were neglected. The murmuring was because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. This was legitimate. This was, not, this was happening. And their response was one of love. We love our brothers. We love our Grecian brothers and sisters. We love our Grecian widows. We want to help them. We care about them. We care more about them. We would rather look bad and minister to them than stand back and look good and ignore their needs. They were more concerned about the needs of those Grecian widows. They responded with God's love. They responded with God's plan. God gives them a plan. God gives them, look, we're not going to be distracted from our focus. We're not going to ignore this problem, but we're going, to, we're going to find a resolution to it. And so they tell the church, look, look out in verse 3, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. They go into this with faith. They go into this trusting that a spirit-filled man in this role, a spirit-filled person in this role will help resolve the issue. They're trusting not in the people who are chosen. And they're not trusting in the people who are doing the choosing. They're trusting the Holy Spirit that is in the person chosen and the person who is in the person choosing. And they are trusting that the Holy Spirit that is guiding them will guide them to confirm this path and this plan. And the plan doesn't come from the apostles, and the plan doesn't come from the congregation, and the plan doesn't come from the deacons who are chosen. The plan comes from God. 
And let me say to you that as a church and that as individuals, as we face problems, if we try to resolve things in our own strength and in our own wisdom, it's going to end in failure. But when we do it in the guidance and in the strength of the Holy Spirit, that is why our leadership will always seek to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is not the congregation that leads and it's not the man that leads. It is the Holy Spirit that guides and directs the church. And that is where safety is, and that's why when they face this problem, and that is why when problems come into our lives as individuals, that we rely on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He will be the one that will show us the plan that God has. God gives them a plan, and he confirms it through a spirit-filled, a, a spirit-empowered plan given to spirit-led leadership, affirmed by a spirit-filled congregation. And God gives this plan, and notice what happens in verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Well, that's pretty impressive, especially when you have two sides that are as divided. It's one thing when the church agrees on something. You know, if a church, uh, one of the old churches didn't have air conditioning, and it's the middle of the summer, and you have a vote about getting an air conditioning, you might conceivably get a unanimous vote. Probably not, but maybe conceivably. I know some, I've read some old minutes from churches, and it's probably not going to happen even then, but maybe you might. But this isn't an air-conditioned situation. This isn't putting toilet paper in the bathrooms kind of situations, and some churches do vote on that. This is a situation where you have two sides that could very easily be divided You have the Hebrews, and then you have the Grecians, and they have different culture and different language and different personalities and different backgrounds, and it could very easily have been a a complete division down the middle of the church. But the Holy Spirit does what? The Spirit unites us into one, and they are in full agreement. It showed their fellowship. What an amazing thing, and it's also amazing if you take the time I won't go into all this this morning, but in verse 5, the seven men that they choose, they're all Grecian names. They didn't say, all right, we're going to solve this and we're going to put some of our buddies in charge. They chose seven men. The congregation named them. The Holy Spirit confirmed them as they prayed over them. And said, these are, these are the ones that were all part of the group that was raising the concern. I mean, who better? The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. But notice the qualifications. They didn't say, hey, let's get some people that are good business people. I've heard, I've heard that said in churches before. Hey, that, that man make a good deacon. He, he's got good business sense. Now, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to have business sense to be a leader in the church. But there's something that's far more important. Oh, that person's a good administrator. Hey, this is, a, this is an administrative job. Somebody's got to oversee this. This is somebody that's going to oversee the distribution of it. Let's look for somebody that's got great administrative skills. Do you see the qualifications? Look at verse 3. Look you out among you seven men of honest report. They're known to be honest men. They are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. These people are handling the distribution of food. 
Oh, we know the preacher's got to be filled with the Spirit. We know the music director and the music pastor's got to be filled with the Spirit. We know the Sunday school teachers are supposed to be filled with the Spirit, but everybody else, it really is not that big of a deal. Anybody can park a car. Let me tell you that if you're parking cars on this parking lot, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You really need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're greeting and welcoming, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're singing in the choir, if you're standing in the congregation, singing with the congregation and worshiping together, you need to be filled with the Spirit. It doesn't matter where you are serving, what task you are doing, it is necessary. The qualification for service in God's church is the filling of His Holy Spirit. And they sought out men that were full of the Holy Spirit. I love what they say about the first one, Stephen. Look at this. A man, his, name's, his name was listed first. Very likely he was the most prominent. He was the leader of the group. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. We would assume just because the qualification required being full of the Holy Ghost that Stephen was, but the Holy Spirit goes even further. Do you know that it's the Holy Spirit that's telling us that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit? And I think if anybody knows, the Holy Spirit would have known that he was filling Stephen. And faith. Now I want you to see down in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power. What's the result when they respond to the problem in the right way? What will be the result when we respond to problems the right way? Let me show you several things from this text. Number one, the Savior was exalted. The Savior was exalted. Whatever God does in your life, if it's his work, whatever God does in the life of our church, it will be to exalt Jesus Christ. Look at the first part of verse 7. And the word of God increased. What is that word of God? It is the message of the gospel that the apostles are proclaiming. They responded correctly. And what happened? The word increased. The, the word that is preached, the word of God, the message of the gospel, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. We know that that's the gospel. Look, what happens when a church gets sidetracked by bitterness and gets sidetracked by bickering among its members? It gets its focus off of the gospel. We've got to keep our focus. We've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. He's the one. It is the message of the gospel that is our task. It is glorifying God that is our task. And anything that distracts us from that is from the wicked one. Sometimes it's not the distraction. It's not the, it's not the person causing dissension that draws people away. Sometimes their dissension will cause good people to get bitter and angry. And they get so riled up at the person that's causing the problem. And Satan has still won. Not because people went along with the, with the dissension, but because they got angry at it. Look, we've got to keep our eyes on the gospel, keep our eyes on Jesus always and proclaiming the gospel. Jesus Christ is exalted. Sinners are evangelized. The number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
There are many people getting saved, and some that are the hard to reach. These are the, these are the priests. These are the ones who are immersed in their traditional religion, and they're going to be the least who are likely to respond to the gospel. Yet the Holy Spirit is at work in their life, and they are responding to the message of the gospel. Why? Because the church stayed on focus, and they didn't let the problems. And the believers did the same thing. Don't let your problems get your eyes off of Jesus. Many were believers. You know, I love to see what God is doing. If anybody wants to talk about problems that the church encountered, boy, this past year and a half or so has been probably one of the biggest problems that churches have encountered. There were those who said the church will never come back. I'm still reading people who are saying, <laughs> and I love that. I, I just love to look around this morning the church isn't going to make it back. I do know there are churches that are struggling. I get that. But let me tell you that Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'll tell you what I believe, and I'm hearing from many pastor friends around the country and churches around the country, and we're seeing, we're seeing a number of those added to the church. We're seeing souls that are being saved. We're seeing the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Why? Because we're not going to let problems sidetrack us. We're going to let the Holy Spirit continue to work through us. And the same will happen in your life with the fruit of souls, the fruit of the Spirit, when we keep our eyes on Jesus. The Savior was exalted. Sinners were evangelized. But I love this. The saints were empowered. Greater ministry takes place because these seven men who up to this point we know nothing about. They were just sitting on a pew, apparently. They had a reputation among the church. They loved God. They loved people. They were of good report. They were honest. They had good character. And they were filled with the Spirit of God. And God chooses them. And first among them is a man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen comes across the pages of Scripture briefly just for a moment. He's, like a, he's almost like a meteor. He comes and suddenly he's there and brightly passes through the sky and is an extraordinary expression of God's glory. And then he's gone. But his name means crown. And he is one that is crowned with the martyr's crown. And at first, all we know about him is, is that he's filled with the Spirit. And now he's serving in the church and he's serving those with needs and he's serving the widows and the orphans in the distribution of food. And then we come down to verse 8 and he's full of faith and power and he's doing great wonders and miracles among the people. Now he's not just serving in the church, he's doing amazing work. The, the Holy Spirit is at work through him to do miracles and wonders. And now he's in the the synagogue of the libertines, the synagogue of the freed men. He's in the synagogue of those who are like him, the Grecian synagogue, the synagogue of, of, of Jews from around the world that are like Stephen and the other, the other deacons. And now he's arguing with them, and he's so persuasive in his argument that they can't even answer him. And so they begin to argue, and they, they don't like him, and they cast him out, and they drag him out, and now he's preaching one of the most powerful and convicting sermons 
that has ever been preached in Acts chapter 7. And he's proclaiming the message of Jesus. And he's proclaiming the gospel. And they do what most people do when they can't win an argument. They decide they're going to stone him. They begin to stone him and Stephen looks up and he's got a heavenly vision of Jesus. Here's a man that just appeared a chapter before. But he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And God is doing extraordinary things. And he comes to light because the church was willing to say, look, we can't do everything. We need some who will step up, find some godly men, find some spirit-filled people who will do this task and who will meet this need and who will be the resolution to this problem. And God has turned this problem into the impetus that has thrust Stephen out and he's preaching this message and he's seeing Jesus lifted up and he's being stoned as the first martyr. And he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. All of this takes place because the church said, we're not going to respond to problems in the flesh. We're going to be filled with the Spirit. And we're going to let Him guide us. And we're going to let Him guide how we respond to the people that have the problems. And we're going to let Him guide us in the path to resolve the problems. And we're going to be filled with the Spirit as we go forward. I don't know what would have happened if they hadn't, while Stephen is laying there being stoned to death. There's a young man that was probably in that synagogue where he had been preaching. And I suspect from what we know of his personality, he didn't respond well to not winning an argument. And he's holding the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. You see, he's part of the Grecian synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, because he's not from Jerusalem originally either. He's a Greek-speaking Jew from a city of Tarsus, a man by the name of Saul. And as he stands there and watches Stephen be stoned to death, the Holy Spirit begins to convict his heart and begins to goad him. And just chapters later on the road to Damascus, God will say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goads. I believe with all my heart that the first goad that was goading Saul's conscience was the death of Stephen. And it all started with a bunch of believers that said, problems? Sure. But we're going to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to bring those problems to God and He's going to give us the, the path He's going to allow us. We're going to let Him do the work. We're going to let Him guide. I don't know what problems you faced this morning. I know all of you said you had problems. And I know we do. Sometimes they're big ones. Sometimes they're little ones. The question is, what will we do with them? Will we respond in the flesh? Or will we respond in the Spirit? I know what the Bible tells me to do with my problems. He says, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're one of those people that likes to come around after we've cast them and come back and pick them back up. We've got to cast. We've got to let go of our problems. A spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled believer facing problems. Let's bow for prayer.
Father, Lord, this passage overwhelms me every time I read it and every time I preach it because I see in this delicate moment what could have happened. I have seen in churches through my life situations like this that have caused churches to split and die. And yet, Lord, instead of dividing, this caused the church to multiply. Lord, whatever challenges we face, whatever problems we go through, as individuals, as a church, Lord, we want to see you use them. We want to go through them trusting you, casting them on you, bringing them to you, trusting that you will see us through them. And you will not only see us through them, you will bless through them. And souls will be saved. Thank you, Father, for the souls we are see, being, seeing saved week after week. And the message of the gospel that is abounding through missions and through evangelistic work and through Bible clubs and through camps and through our service tonight. Father, I pray that you will help us as a church to be on our face before you, trusting you, 